Okay, so good evening again. Just continuing, picking up from where I left off last night, where I gave a pretty brief overview of these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And there's one particular factor of that list that I'd like to take a bit more time to explore now, because it's one that's relevant pretty much in every moment in our meditation practice and in our daily life. So whether we're sitting in formal meditation practice, whether we're doing the grocery shopping or taking care of the kids or the grandkids, no matter what form our practice is taking, right or wise effort is always going to be necessary. So wise effort is always necessary. And I think it's one of the path factors that's the most easily misunderstood, at least it was in my own experience. So before we go any further, just to take a moment to pause and to notice when you hear this term, right effort, is there any particular response? Notice the body, the heart, the mind. Sorry? What is right effort? Yeah, that's a very good question. And it's possible that on this side of the world you haven't had the experience that I've had of hearing a lot of senior teachers telling kind of war stories from their practice in Burma, of staying up all night and practicing with Saito Upandita and very strict forms of practice. So you might not have the same conditioning that I had, but when I would hear the idea of right effort, I'd think, oh no, here we go. The teachers are going to tell us we're not trying hard enough. They're going to tell us about how on retreat in Burma they only got four hours sleep a night. And I feel exhausted even thinking about that. In fact, I think I'll go to bed as soon as this talk is finished. Or at other times it was like, yes, good, now we're finally getting to the real practice. Wise effort, enough of all that fluffy stuff about kindness and compassion. Now it's time to really crank it up. I'm going to get three hours of sleep a night. And then for other people, might be not much response at all. So I just invite you to notice if there are perhaps any ideas or views or beliefs about what this term is referring to. Because we want to bring awareness to any perceptions, views, self-views, Because if we're not aware of them, they're often driving our practice sort of just in peripheral awareness, but they're still coloring how we approach things and feeding often into pretty unconscious habits of either making too much effort or not enough. And this tendency to go between extremes was true even for the Buddha himself before he became fully awake. So he struggled for many years, in fact, to find the right balance in relation to effort. So as many of you know, according to the discourses, the Buddha-to-be, who was at that point known as Siddhartha Gautama, he started off at one end of the spectrum. So according to the legend, he was born a kind of a prince in northern India. So he was able to live a life of pretty much total ease 
and luxury. And he could indulge every kind of sense pleasure imaginable. So he had a pretty privileged life, we could say. Then at about the age of 29, he started to feel that this wasn't a very meaningful way to live his life. And he went through a kind of existential crisis. He ended up renouncing the life of luxury. He left the palace and he became a wandering spiritual practitioner, actually a pretty hardcore ascetic. Because in India at that time, most of the spiritual practices involved various forms of mortification of the body. So in that phase, he spent seven years practicing the most intense, the most rigorous, and by our standards, the most extreme kinds of spiritual practices. And he was a good student. So it's said that he practiced these different austerities, actually to the point of almost dying. So he had collapsed, he was on the verge of death, when fortunately he had a breakthrough and he realized, hmm, maybe this isn't quite working the way I'd hoped. And it said at that point his mind slipped back to a pleasant memory of when he was about six or seven years old. And at that time as a child he'd been sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And he spontaneously slipped into a state of deep samadhi, deep absorption, that was very pleasant. And so the Buddha-to-be, as he was close to death, wondered, I wonder if that could be the way. Why have I been afraid of what's pleasant? That mental pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasure, could this be the way? And then he realized, yes, mental pleasure is the key. And that was a turning point in his practice. And it said that shortly thereafter, he attained full awakening, full freedom. So I think it's significant that the first discourse he gave after awakening was a teaching on the middle way, the need to find balance between the extremes of self-indulgence on one hand and self-torture on the other. So I'm guessing most of us here perhaps have more familiarity with the tendency towards self-indulgence than self-torture, at least in physical terms, because those kind of austerity practices are not part of our culture anymore. But as some teachers have made the point these days, what is common is a kind of psychological self-torture. So many of us are extremely hard on ourselves, very aversive, critical, self-judgmental, and so on. So we can see that as a form of imbalance. Many of us are our own worst enemies, constantly judging and criticizing and undermining ourselves. So even though we might know intellectually that this middle way is about balance, in actual practice it can be quite hard to find because of that dominant culture conditioning of perfectionism and competitiveness and striving and busyness and productivity and so on. So when we hear the term right effort, we can, it can trigger a sense of self-judgment. Not good enough, not right, getting it wrong again. At least that was true for me early on in my practice. 
So I would hear this term, right effort, and I'd immediately think blood, sweat, and tears. Because I completely missed the right part, and I had a very narrow focus on the effort part with grim determination. And we do tend to be, I think, pretty dualistic, very binary, very all or nothing. So we get caught up in ideas of good and bad and right and wrong and success and failure. So again, the first step in finding wise effort is to be able to recognize our own default patterns. Because most of us do tend to default more towards one side than the other. So I've given this talk a few times and I know from experience that very easy to selectively listen to a Dharma talk and hear just the bits that we want to hear, which unfortunately usually reinforce our existing biases. So when I give this talk, I often wish there was a way of, okay, all the self-indulgent people, you sit over here, don't listen to this next bit, because this is for the too tight people. And then, okay, all you too tight people, don't listen to this bit, because this is for the self-indulgent people. But what usually happens is that the self-indulgent people hear the invitation to relax and go, yes, that's great, I can spend more time in bed. And then the too tight people hear the invitation to up the effort and write two hours sleep for me tonight. (laughs) So just to notice where is your particular bias and try to listen to the parts that are most relevant for you. So just a little bit first about the common tendency of making too much effort. Often this is common in the first few days of a retreat. So we start off perhaps inspired and enthusiastic and we have this burst of intense striving and we try extra hard with every sitting and we force ourselves to focus continually on the breath and we drag our attention back every time it wanders. And then when we come to walking, we fixate on every single step, push ourselves to get up early in the morning, stay up late in the evening. How does that go? Usually after a day, maybe two days, we're exhausted. And then we sort of collapse into this phase of apathy. Eventually, we pull ourselves up again, and then the whole cycle starts. So we swing from apathy to over-effort, striving, to apathy, and back again. And this, to me, is so common. I've seen it in so many people, including myself, that I call it the superhero to slug syndrome. (laughs) Because there's a sense that I've got to make 110% effort. Otherwise, I'm going to revert to that loathsome slug that I used to be yesterday. So there's this syndrome that we have that's pretty unsustainable. And again, because of our conditioning, it's not surprising that we often bring a very goal-oriented attitude to our practice. We're constantly looking for results. And when they don't show up in the time frame we want, we get impatient. And we get caught up in expectations about how our practice is supposed to unfold, how it's supposed to look, what's supposed to be happening. But usually what's actually happening is pretty different from our expectations. And so then we fall into judgment and disappointment and self-judgment and doubt, which consumes more energy, saps the effort more, and it's another one of those 
vicious cycles. So we want to learn to recognize when we're forcing the practice in some way. And just as one very simple example, you might notice when you hear the bell at the end of a session, what happens? Is there just a wave of, oh, wave of relief, almost physical collapsing at the delight of the bell ringing? That might be a sign that there's just a little too much effort being made. Because the moment before the bell rang, the moment after the bell rang, they are equal opportunities to be mindful. But we want to be noticing if there's that building up of tension, of tightness, and see if we can settle back into that more relaxed continuity of awareness. So how do we get out of this cycle of under-efforting and over-efforting? Again, mindfulness is the first step. Mindfulness of what's happening in the bodies and our hearts and minds, and then how we are relating to our experience. So I brought this in very briefly in the guided meditation, I think yesterday. So we can just start to notice what's happening in the body. Is there a build-up of tension and anticipation and tightness? What's happening in the mind? Oh, there's wanting, there's wanting, there's wanting the bell to ring. How am I relating to this? I'm not liking it. I'm wanting it to be over. There's resistance. Okay. Can I just ease up? So we want to notice the beginning stages of clinging or resisting because the earlier we can catch them, the easier it is to help them release. And if we do recognize some pretty strong identification conditioning that's underneath that over-efforting, sometimes we can bring in a little investigation. I suggested this in some of the small group meetings, but just to write down perhaps some of those views and beliefs and perceptions and self-images, we might ask, what do I think would happen if I didn't make quite so much effort? Or who would I be if I didn't make quite so much effort? And just notice what's the response. Listen for the intuitive answer. And perhaps asking that question might reveal some kind of deep-rooted fear or anxiety or inadequacy. And if so, we want to try to meet it with compassion to not take it personally. Again, because these patterns come from our dominant culture conditioning. They're not our unique individual shortcomings or neuroses. So can we meet them with kindness? So in some ways, this practice of finding balance is a practice of listening. And there's a well-known metaphor for this in the Buddha's teachings. So in one of the discourses, the Buddha has a monastic student who in his former life had been a lute player. And he is really caught in striving. And he's making absolutely no progress. In fact, he's going backwards. So he goes to the Buddha for advice. And the Buddha asked him, well, when he played the lute, if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings very tight? Very obviously, the answer is no. 
And then the Buddha said, well, if you wanted a good sound, did you tune the strings too loose? Again, common sense, the answer is no. So we need to tune the strings just right to find that midpoint between too tight and too loose. And how do we do that? By listening. So we need to train ourselves to listen to our own bodies and hearts and minds, to recognize what for us is too tight and too loose. Because this is going to keep changing. Just like with an instrument, we don't tune it once, then sit it in the corner and that's it. Every time we pick it up, we have to re-listen to what's appropriate balanced effort for us now might be completely different tomorrow morning or completely different if we have an injury or some kind of illness. So we need to keep up this process of listening. And many of us here are working with different, dif- different physical issues, health challenges, some visible, some invisible. So again, we need to adjust to find that balanced approach for us. So making too much effort, it's a bit like driving a car and just flooring it and trying to go 90 miles an hour all the time, not sustainable. The other extreme is just creeping along at 20, also not so helpful. So the other imbalance is making not enough effort, perhaps sliding into complacency. And that's very common when we come on retreat to get to some kind of edge or challenge or difficulty and just consciously or unconsciously withdraw or rebel to retreat back into our comfort zones, our familiar habits, our comfortable ways of being. And on one level, this is normal, it's natural. We love comfort, given the choice If we could, we'd probably stay happily in our comfort zones forever. But one Tibetan teacher complained about this with his students, and he described how he was constantly telling his students to wake up, but that they were like marsupials, and they just wanted to wriggle back down into the pouch. So maybe you can relate to that, just wanting to stay cozy. There's part of us that would like to be a marsupial, perhaps. And maybe some of you are wondering, well, what's the problem with that? Why not just be comfortable? Well, one, it's not possible all the time to be comfortable. And two, is that the downside of our comfort zone, staying within them, is that over time they get smaller. Have you noticed that, those of you who are maybe a little bit older? Things that you were quite happy about when you were 20 or 30, now you cannot do without whatever, you cannot cope with something that 10 years earlier, minor discomfort. So there's a kind of comfort creep, actually the opposite way, where our comfort zones get smaller. Now here on retreat, even where our options are quite limited, have you noticed how quickly we develop strategies for staying comfortable? That we might have our favorite seat in the dining room, or we might have our favorite place to walk, What happens if somebody else shows up there? We have our favorite clothes, and we have a nice routine for ourselves of when to nap and when to shower and when to have tea, 
And if our routine gets thrown off in some way, we can get surprisingly reactive. So we all have our own strategies for trying to stay in our comfort zones. And these days, as meditation becomes more and more mainstream, it is sometimes presented as a form of self-care. And so people say, well, I'm just practicing self-care in my wellness center or my day spa or my health retreat. And there's definitely a place for that. But in this context, we're looking at more than just the short-term self-care, momentary, feeling better. We're looking at a long-term, deeper form of self-care that isn't, doesn't have the potential perhaps to shade into perhaps self-indulgence. So again, I'm speaking from my own experience of after a period of trying way too hard on retreat, I thought, okay, I'm supposed to find the middle way, so I'll just back up a bit here and I'll just do some self-care. And instead of sitting and walking and sitting, it was like sit one, nap one, walk a half, nap one and a half, <laughs> sit a quarter. And over time, it was like much more on the nap side and much less on the actual practice side. And then at some point, I realized, hmm, maybe I'm not really making the most of my time here. So we can ask ourselves, you know, based on the aspirations that you made on opening night, if we are sliding a little maybe into complacency or self-indulgence, is what I'm doing now really in the service of my deeper aspirations? Am I moving in the direction of the total freedom that the Buddha is offering us? So again, this freedom is not about constantly manipulating our external conditions to make ourselves comfortable. We're training that inner capacity to let go and to let be, so that, as it says in the suttas, we can abide independent, not clinging to anything, not needing things to be a certain way in order for us to be happy. But if our default strategy has always been to avoid discomfort, at some point, we're going to find ourselves in a situation where we can't just grab an extra pillow or eat some chocolate or have a shower or have a cup of tea or take a painkiller or play with our phones or whatever it is. Our usual strategies at some point are not going to be available to us or they don't work anymore. And for sure, eventually, all of us are going to have to face into our own aging our vulnerability to illness, and our own dying, if we aren't already. So to use an analogy, it's a bit like weightlifting. I'm not a weightlifter, you can probably tell, but it makes sense that if we want to start weightlifting, we don't start with 50 kilos. We don't wait until there's a big crisis and then start practicing. We want to gradually work with the 5, the 10 kilo weights, so we're building up our capacity to be with challenging situations and we're stretching our comfort zones gently, not blasting through them. So again, we want to do this with kindness and with humor because again, it's human nature to take the easy option if we have a choice. And this is a training. And when we are able to step out of our comfort zones, 
often what we experience is a deep sense of contentment, one that's much more satisfying than any of our usual creature comforts. So right or wise effort involves looking at the overall quality of the effort that we're applying to see if it's balanced and sustainable. And in the context of our meditation practice as a refinement of wise effort, you might remember last night, probably not, but right effort is defined in terms of four aspects. So the first effort is to prevent unskillful mental states from coming up. But the Buddha was a realist and he knew that at some point they would. So the second effort is when they do come up, to make the effort to abandon them. And then the third effort is to help skillful, beneficial mental states to arise. And then the fourth effort is when those skillful states have arisen, to prolong them and to deepen them. So we're, on the one hand, allowing the unskillful states to release, and on the other, helping the skillful states to come into being. Now, at this stage in the retreat, this is only day two, right? I'm losing track of time a bit. But it's still pretty early, even though you seem very settled, it's only day two. And so most of us are probably going to be spending more effort at this point dealing with the unskillful mental states. Because at this stage, we haven't been here very long. The sati and the samadhi are still relatively weak. So I want to take just a bit of time now to touch into some of the very common unskillful mental states that tend to show up in the early days of a retreat. So back on the opening night of the retreat, I suggested that we're on a journey, a journey of discovery. And I mentioned how this journey might take us through a range of different terrains, some of them pleasant, some of them perhaps a little more challenging. So it's inevitable that at times here we might find ourselves in rough terrain. And even though this is normal and to be expected and actually is the practice, when we do come into these more challenging phases of the journey, there's often something in us that feels quite confronted. And even after years of practice, some of you who are more experienced meditators there's often still that tendency to equate pleasant experiences with good meditation. And then the opposite, to equate unpleasant experiences with bad meditation. So when things get difficult, it's easy to think that we've done something wrong. And we put a lot of effort in trying to work out what went wrong so we can get back to that pleasant experience that we had yesterday, or on the last retreat, or even ten years ago. So this afternoon, when we were exploring the second establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of Vedana, or feeling tone, we were starting to see just how quickly and easily the mind gets pulled by pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. When things are unpleasant, without mindfulness, it goes to aversion, to anger or fear. And when things are pleasant, with no mindfulness, it can strengthen greed, wanting. And when things are neutral, we tend to space out 
and it strengthens ignorance or delusion, not really knowing. So I guess it's pretty obvious that when we're caught in these different states, it's going to have a negative impact on our lives and on our meditation practice. But because of delusion, it's very often hard to notice, to recognize these different afflictive states when they're present. So the Buddha helped us out by giving us yet another list, a list of the five hindrances. And these are five unhelpful qualities of mind that, as the name suggests, hinder or get in the way of clear seeing, get in the way of insight. So I'm guessing at least some of you have heard of these five. Yes? Yes? So it's pop quiz time again. (laughs) Anyone, let's try and do them in order. Anyone know the first of these five hindrances? Someone at the back? Sensual desire, desire for sense pleasures. Yeah, thank you. Second one? Not quite. That's a kind of a form of greed or or sensual desire. We could classify it under that first one. Next one's the opposite of wanting. Aversion, ill will, which includes anger and fear. Third one might be in operation right now. Sloth and torpor, yes, which is a form of ignorance. So sleepiness, dullness, drowsiness, heaviness, the mind that's just clouded and dull. Fourth one also might be in operation. It's the opposite of that. Restlessness and worry. So sloth and torpor is the mind going into dullness, Restlessness and worry is a mind revving up into anxiety and spinning out, so it's too much energy. And then the fifth one is a little more complex. Yeah, skeptical doubt as opposed to healthy questioning. So the undermining, the second guessing, the paralysis by analysis, is how one person describes it. So these are the five and I'm not going to go into them in too much detail, but just to check, did anybody recognize any of them in your own experience today? One, two, three, or five? Yeah. So I hope you can take some comfort in that. Because in the silence, it's very easy to think, I am the only one sitting here seething with anger or bored out of my brain or fantasizing with lust and everyone else is sitting there all still and calm and deep samadhi and I'm just going out of my mind here. But as you saw, most people have different flavors of these playing out most of the time. And this is the practice. So these states are called hindrances because they harm our meditation practice. But they also have the potential to harm we ourselves, if they get too much of a grip on us, and they have the potential to harm others too. And the Buddha actually saw working with the hindrances as a form of ethical practice, because he said when the mind is in the grip of the hindrances, they overwhelm awareness and weaken discernment. 
And when a practitioner is without strength and is weak and in discernment, it's impossible for them to understand what is for one's own benefit, to understand what's for the benefit of others, and to understand what's for the benefit of both. So we could see this as another form of ethical training, helping release these hindrances for everyone's benefit, not only we ourselves. So the first stage in helping to release them is knowing that they're there at all. And because they're all rooted in delusion, they do cloud the mind. And that's why it's helpful to have that checklist. And so again, those three questions that I offered earlier, when we ask, how am I relating to this experience? You might just check, is there some form of sensual desire, greed, wanting, lust, food, cravings, all kinds of things? Or is there some form of aversion, ill will, resentment, jealousy, frustration, comparing, and so on? So these have a lot of different nuances, each of them. Or is it what's known as the infamous multiple hindrance attack? So some of you raised five fingers when I asked if you noticed any of them. That is the multiple hindrance attack. And again, in my own experience, I've noticed how they don't tend to show up nicely and politely one at a time. (laughs) They tend to pile on in a whole mob. So we get caught in sense desire and we're desperate for the bell to ring so we can go and get our secret stash of chocolate and it's not ringing. And then there's a wave of aversion and somebody behind us is coughing or snorting or, and we just want to kill them. And then we get caught in doubt and then, you know, we shouldn't even be here this is a total waste of time and revving and restlessness and worry and then it's so exhausting we just fall asleep so that's just one made up kind of hypothetical example of what we can experience when they all come together like that so we want to change the way we relate to these hindrances We want to recognize when they're present, but to not take them personally. There's one training slogan I found a few years ago that was very helpful in this regard, and it says, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. So rather than thinking, if only I wasn't getting caught up in fantasies all the time, then I'd be able to practice. Or if only I could stop obsessing about my next meeting with the teacher, then I'd be able to practice. Or if only that other meditator would stop that very annoying thing they keep doing, then I'd be able to practice. So you see how we're excluding things. But if it's in the way, it is the way. Turn to that annoyance. Turn to that self-judgment. Turn to that doubt. Fold it into the awareness and meet it with kindness rather than taking it personally. So I just have to acknowledge even the term hindrance, you know, it sounds a bit medieval and it definitely doesn't sound good. (laughs) And so we can have this, we hear about wise effort to release the hindrances, but it's to release them, not to get rid of them, because that can just foster more aversion. So I appreciated hearing one Dharma teacher, the English Dharma teacher, Robert Bayer, talking about the hindrances as manifestations of our humanity. Does that change your relationship to them at all? 
So sometimes when I offer this and when I'm doing the meetings, people will come in and say, I've been manifesting so much humanity today. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a different experience. And it's good to be able to laugh about them rather than taking them personally because that only makes them stronger. So when we do encounter one of these hindrances, we want to bring wisdom to it to see it's not personal, it's arising due to conditions. It's not I, it's not me, it's not mine, it's not who I am. And it will change. So it's impermanent and it's impersonal. Nevertheless, it has an impact. It's unpleasant, sometimes quite intensely painful. So at these times we might need to bring in kindness and compassion try to meet that distress, stress and suffering with an attitude of empathy rather than judgment. And in that way, we're already moving into the third and the fourth efforts, which are the effort to allow skillful states (coughs) to arise, and when they have arisen, to deepen and strengthen them. So, speaking of compassion, I'll be talking more about that in tomorrow night's talk. So out of compassion, I think we can bring this talk to a close now. And I just want to say again how much I appreciate all of your diligent effort. So in talking about effort, I'm really aware of how much skillful effort you've been making in that showing up, that consistency. And I trust that it will bring you many benefits. So thank you for your attention. And let's just sit in silence for a few moments. Just to let the words dissolve. 